Hey, there we are. Yeah, there's nothing like getting to baptize somebody in the surf where you go down to dunk them and all of a sudden the water drops because the wave is passed. You're like, hold on, we're, we're going to get you all the way under. <laughs> so anyway, it, it was wonderful. We actually have another beach bonfire coming up on August 5th. And if you want to get baptized, we would love the opportunity to include that as part of that evening. So just let us know. There's some connection cards in the seat back in front of you. And you can fill that out. Just let us know that you're interested in that, and Pastor Jeff or I will follow up with you, kind of talk through what baptism actually means and the, you know, all of that to make sure that you're really ready uh, to, to make that public declaration of that internal decision. And I want to I let you know about one other one. I wasn't planning on doing this, but this is something I'm carrying in with me as I recognize that we're entering into um, a, a time together, and we are family. I want to lift up one of the one of our family members right now uh, whose life has pretty radically changed this week. So my son Ethan's best friend Cooper, who's often here on Sundays with us and is across the street um, on Wednesday nights, Cooper was involved in a traffic accident. He was riding his bicycle, car didn't see him as he was crossing a crosswalk. He was hit really hard. Um, and at this point, we know that he has broken his neck. We don't know the, ex the, the impact that will have long term. Right now, he has, I've heard the, the, the best update I've gotten so far is that he has movement in his right foot, which he didn't have yesterday. So I just want to take a moment and I want to lift up Cooper and Cooper's family um, to, to our Lord and Savior because he's the one who designed Cooper's body. And while this has come as a radical shock to us, uh, it has not come as a shock to him. So if you bow your heads with me. God, we, can, we, we acknowledge right now that we live in a broken world and this accident, and it truly is an accident, is a reminder of the brokenness of this good world that you've created. We grieve what has happened to Cooper's body. We grieve the trauma that it is currently going through. But I'm so thankful that he's still alive. I'm so thankful that he chose to put on that helmet that morning because that helmet saved his life. I'm so thankful for the, the doctor that was on scene almost immediately, and I'm so thankful for the, the paramedics that were there rapidly. I'm so thankful that while his movement has been impeded at the moment, all of his extremities seem to still be connected to his brain, and we pray, Father, that you would protect him, that you would preserve not only his life and his cognitive ability, but that you would preserve his ability to move. I pray that you would be in that hospital. We, we can't go see him. Only his parents can be in there right now. So I pray that you would be in that hospital room at chalk with him as the doctors try to figure out how best to care for him. But I love the fact that right now the best treatment they have is to simply wait and allow his body to heal in the way that you've designed it to heal. That his bones and his neck are knitting themselves back together. That that his body is dealing with the swelling and inflammation that is even now impinging his ability to move his extremities. I pray that you would not only minister to his body, but to his mind and his heart. I pray that you would wrap your arms, Holy Spirit, around his family that are so scared in all of this. I also lift up David, the man who is driving the car. And I pray that you would be ministering to his heart. We pray that you'd bring peace and that you would do what only you can do and bring beauty out of the seemingly meaningless ashes of this accident. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. 
Okay, so his name again is Cooper, and if it, if it just comes to mind, I would, I would covet you as our church family, lifting him up. He's 13 years old. Um, yeah. And, um, yeah. Anyway, with that, I'm going to transition to something that was supposed to be lighthearted, but that didn't start out so lighthearted, did it? Um, you know, there's this... It's so funny to try to transition. So, so there's, I have to admit that there's a battle that's going on in my household like daily. And it's a battle that you probably have experienced in one way or another, particularly those of you who live with anybody else. And that is a battle for the music that plays in your house. Do you have this, do you have this battle? Like we have Alexa, and I'm sorry for any of you who have Google phones or whatever that, that I just caused it to, or those of you who are watching at home that your, your, your monitor just went crazy when I said that name. Uh, but we have Alexa, and so every night at dinner, we will always kind of say, hey, everybody gets to pick a song. And in our house, the battle, at least for the last decade or so, has been between me wanting to play 70s rock, my wife wanting to play contemporary worship music, and my mother-in-law who lives with us wanting to play her Gaither gospel music that's older than I am. <laughs> that's the battle that has traditionally been waged within our home. But lately, there's a new player in the battle... And that is my 13-year-old son, Ethan, who has a very strong opinion about music. He loves rap, contemporary rap, not the good stuff, the truly bad stuff, like the, the stuff that you're just like, this makes my ears bleed. He loves it, unapologetically. And at dinner time, we're like, who wants to play a song? And Grayson's like, I want to play Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. And Ethan's like, I want to play, I don't even know. Like, I couldn't even begin to make up a title without probably getting myself in trouble. And I will, pr I, I, listen, I, I love my boys. I love them and I want them to be independent. I want them to have their own personalities and their own tastes. I don't want to force them into a mold, but, but I don't love it when I actually have to listen to their preferences, right? I just don't. So when he asks to play a song and we will get maybe a paragraph into it and I'm like, yeah, we're done. Okay, moving on. Um, that's, that is the battle that is being waged. And I will oftentimes pull out my trump card, which is, hey, it's my house. My music preference, right? That's how it goes there. And we laugh about it, and I, I have a feeling I'm hearing that there are some of you who might have a similar battle that has been waged within your house. Um, but it's not just in our homes that this war is waged. It actually is waged within God's house as well, isn't it? Because this is one of those things that has kind of always plagued the church, the modern church at least, for as long as I've been alive, is a preference about the type of worship that we engage in in this place. And generationally, we have our differences of opinion. Some of you want hymns, lots and lots of hymns. Others of you want contemporary songs like that last one that we sang, which I felt was just so inviting to recognize who God was, and it was just really ministered to my heart. Some of you, I can't tell you how many times I will, you know, hear one of you say, hey, worship was great and all, but can we have it be a little bit louder? Or, hey, can we have it be a little bit softer? Or, hey, can we maybe work in a country western song every once in a while? <laughs> the answer to that last one is absolutely categorically no. Jesus was a Middle Eastern man. We are not going to worship him with country Western music. Thank you very much. You know the worst part is next week when Bill and the band are back up here, they are totally going to work in a country Western song just to spite their pastor, which quite honestly is my love language. So that's, that's fine. Um, I feel loved in that way. But 
it, it's not exactly a laughing matter because how many churches, how many churches have been, been impacted by the battle over worship preference? How many churches have literally been split in half because people could not agree on the way that we want to worship God? And you know what the saddest part about this entire thing is? It insinuates that worship is about us. It suggests that the songs that we sing are not about the one that we're singing them about. They're about us and our preferences. And when we begin to worship, I'm sorry, when we begin to place our preferences over and above hearts that willingly come and declare that God is the focus, we remove him from the throne of our hearts and we place ourselves on the throne of our hearts and we make it about us. And in that moment, at the moment that we start making it about our opinions and our preferences and our desires, we are no longer worshiping. We are practicing idolatry. Because I worship, there is no word for worship in Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic. No word for worship, no place in worship, or no place in scripture where worship is declared to be about our personal preferences or about the posture and the preferences and the, the tastes of those who are worshiping. Over and over and over, we see that every word for worship is directed towards one person and one person only, and that is our God. And anything that we purport to be worship that is not directed towards him is by definition idolatry, whether it be about us or about other people. And I will confess that the modern church and even my own heart has practiced far too much idolatry. We have made it about our own preferences over and above God. Our hearts we, the words we sing may be focused on him, but our hearts are focused on ourselves or people around us. And this morning I have one point, and it's a very simple point. Worship is not about you. Worship is not about me. It's about God. Again, worship is not for you. And worship is not for me. And worship is not for the people around us. Worship is for God. Now, you know who, somebody who actually got this, like really got this, is King David. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. And for those of you who, who didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, there's some in the seat back in front of you. For those of you who don't own a Bible, please feel free to take that one. Or if it's pretty beat up, we can give you another one before you leave. I would love for you to have one of your own. But 2 Samuel... Um, understandably comes directly after 1 Samuel. I'm just trying to be helpful here as you're turning there. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, if you're using my Bible, is on page 278, but probably won't help any of you. Um, King David is one of those people that we hear about a lot in Scripture. He was not the first king of Israel, but he was certainly the most famous king of Israel. But I will tell you this right from the outset. King David was not a perfect king. He wasn't a perfect person. He wasn't a perfect father. 
He got a lot of things wrong, but there's one thing that he got right over and over and over again, and that was the posture he took into worship. He understood, better than many of us do, that worship wasn't about him, it was about God. And as we're picking up the story, context is key, so let me just kind of paint the backstory here. This is in the early stages of King David establishing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. They had just conquered it. They're just kind of getting comfortable in that place. They had not yet built the temple, so they still had the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. Um, And like I mentioned last week, the Ark of the Covenant was a tangible symbol for the nation of Israel to remind them of God's covenantal relationship with them. In the same way that the cross for us is a tangible symbol of the covenant of grace that Jesus established for us 2,000 years ago, in the same way that this is a reminder to us that we can't save ourselves and that we don't have to, the Ark of the Covenant was a tangible reminder to the people of Israel that the creator and sustainer of the universe wanted relationship with them and had established relationship with them and that this Ark became the almost like metaphorical throne on earth. It mattered. Within the Ark, was some manna to remind them of the way that God had provided for them. And within that ark were the Ten Commandments to remind them of the, the posture that the King of Creation had invited them to take in order to be able to maintain their relationship with Him and with one another. All of that was contained within the Ark of the Covenant. It was an incredibly important symbol to the people, but it had gotten lost in battle. When they had been fighting against One of the many nations that they fought against, the ark was taken. And for a time, it was separated from the people. And that would be like somebody, if we only had one cross, somebody getting a hold of that cross and it being held by a group of people that we considered to be our enemies. But as we begin this story, as we jump into the narrative that we're going to find in 2 Samuel, the ark has been regained from that nation. In fact, we didn't, they didn't retake it in battle. The other nation began to experience like an outbreak of pl- a plague of rats and tumors and stuff. And they're like, this thing is responsible. Get rid of it. And they literally sent it back to Israel. Like, you take it. And, and that ark had been then sent to a guy, Obed-Edom's home, and it had been stored there for a couple of months. And what the people of Israel began to hear about is the fact that Obed-Edom was blessed because of the ark's presence in his home. And so finally, someone's like, hey, David, if it's blessing his home, imagine what it's going to do to Jerusalem when we bring it back. And so David's like, let's do it. And that's where we're picking up the story here in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 12. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoice, and the city of David being Jerusalem. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. This is going to take a while. They're taking a long, slow journey back into Jerusalem. Wearing a linen ephod, which is kind of like a piece of cloth that would cover the back and the front, but kind of open on the sides. Wearing this linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord like a white boy, right? He was just getting into it. I don't know why I said like a white boy, because he wasn't a white boy. He was Israeli, but whatever, like, give me a break here, okay? 
So wearing this linen ephod, David was dancing with all of his might before the Lord, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. And as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, who was also his wife, was watching from her window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. There's a lot of reasons for that. But one of them is the way that David is acting. The way that David is supposedly leading his people by dancing like a complete lunatic. Verse 17, they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. This would be the predecessor to the temple. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. And then he gave a loaf of bread and a cake of dates and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. And when David returned home to bless his household, so he's done doing his public work, and now he's coming back home to, be a, to bless Michael and to bless the rest of his family. Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, my, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. So right out of the gate, before David even has the opportunity to step foot into his home, Michael is already criticizing him for the way in which he led the people and led the Ark of the Covenant back in. And I want to pause here just to acknowledge that Michael really represents a posture that so many of us carry into worship. You see... Whereas David is focused on everybody else, or I'm sorry, whereas David is focused on the one whom he's worshiping, Michael's focused on everybody else. Michael is well aware of the fact that David is not acting like kings traditionally act, calm, collected, stoic, or whatever it is. David is acting exuberantly, and for her, that is unacceptable. That was unacceptable characteristic and unworthy of a king in her opinion. And so she, was made, she made sure that David knew that, made sure that he knew that she didn't approve of the way he was acting. And look at the way that David responds. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone else from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people. It was before him that and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this if that's what it takes. In fact, I will be humiliated in my own eyes. I don't care. I don't care what anybody else thinks about me, Michael. I don't care what you think about me, Michael. Because I'm worshiping an audience of one. That's where my heart is. And if that if that doesn't work for you, I don't care. For David, and I, I get, and I understand, and I acknowledge that David's posture is the right one. 
David's focus from first to last is on his God. And he doesn't care if it embarrasses him. He doesn't care if it makes other people think less of him. He doesn't care if his dancing isn't on rhythm. He doesn't care if his singing isn't on key. He doesn't care because he knows that God listens to his heart, not the tone of his voice. And I know that that's the right posture to take. But if I'm honest, and I want to be honest with you, I got a whole lot of Michael, even now in my own heart. Because here's what I find. When I go into a time of worship, I want to be fully and completely focused on God. I want the words that are on the screen that we are singing to be heartfelt, not just words that I sing, but words that I mean. But I find this at work. I find that even as I'm singing them, I'm wondering, am I on key? Am, am I, do I sound all right? Or, or, or are people judging me because I'm too loud or too soft? Actually, I don't ever think I'm too soft. I always know I'm too loud. <laughs> am I harmonizing well? Am I a distraction to people? How about, how about the posture of my body? Am, is, what are other people doing? Are they standing? Are they kneeling? What are they doing so I can kind of follow suit? I, I actually heard one of you this morning after the very first song, start to clap, and then you realize that nobody else is clapping and you very quickly stopped. I'm like, I get that, I do that. Like, oh, we're, this is not the part where we clap. Okay, cool, I'm out, right? We make it about other people. And, and I will also admit that when I have somebody visiting for the first time that I know, maybe I've met you in the way or, or I've invited somebody to come and it's their first time, I find that I have such a difficult time being in worship and focusing on God because I'm so much caught up in my head hearing the, the words and listening to it from the perspective of the person that I brought. Do they like it? Do they think it's, do they, do they, is it their style? Is it too loud? Is it too soft? Is it too contemporary? Is it not contemporary enough? And I'm so caught up in that that my heart gets distracted. There is so much Michael in me. And I would imagine that there's a lot of Michael in, in us as well where we begin to become more concerned with the opinions of others than we do with actually being present and worshiping in God. And in that moment, we cease to worship and we start to turn others into idols that we are trying to garner their approval. I want to back up here, though, and I want to acknowledge something that we've been saying this whole series on worship, and that is worship is not just singing songs. It never has been just singing songs. Worship is everything we do that is in response to God. And so singing songs is a response to who God is. He is worthy of those words that we put on the screen. But that's not the... When we leave this place at 1130, worship doesn't end. Worship is anything we do in response to God. So because God has been gracious to us, when we give grace to another human being, whether it be a spouse or a, a child or a, somebody who cuts us off on the road, that act of giving grace is an act of worship to our God. He modeled it for us. And when we serve somebody else, well, we're, and we do it as a response to the fact that our God served us, our God modeled servanthood through Jesus. I mean, even the, the day before Jesus was crucified, he got down on his hands and knees and washed his disciples' feet, setting an example for them and for us, the kind of posture of servanthood, leadership from the bottom as opposed to leadership from the top. 
And so when we serve another person, we do so as an act of worship, or at least hopefully it would be an act of worship. But again, when we start doing those acts of worship and hoping that other people will notice that we do them, we do something kind for somebody and then just happen to mention it on social media so that everybody can be like, wow, awesome job. At that moment, it ceases to be worship and it begins to be idolatry. Whether it's because we're placing ourselves on the throne of our hearts and we're asking everybody else to celebrate us. Or we're trying to placate everybody's expectations. This is what's expected of me. I want to make sure that everybody thinks I'm really righteous. And in so doing, we take our eyes off of God and our motivation becomes about other people as opposed to him. Jesus actually addresses this directly in his Sermon on the Mount. Go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus addresses a lot of things in his Sermon on the Mount, but the primary thing that he is getting at throughout his entire sermon that he gives is that it's less about the external, it's less about what we do, and it's more about your heart. Let's get to the heart of the matter. Let's address your motives for the things that you do. And here in chapter 6, he goes right to the heart of what is your motivation behind your acts of service, behind your prayer life, behind your giving, behind your sacrifices. What is your motivation? He says this in chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness or your acts of worship in front of others to be seen by them. If you do... You'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the mask wearers, the hypocrites do in the synagogue and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Why? Because they are looking for the approval of others, not the approval of God. So they've already gotten their benefits, so don't expect anything from God in that instance. Verse 3, but when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving might be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, those mask wearers, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. Everybody saw how eloquently they prayed. That's it. That's all they're getting. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He goes on to talk about fasting, which is something I know many of us don't necessarily practice on a regular basis, but he basically says the same thing. When you fast, don't make sure that everybody knows about it going, oh, I'm so hungry. Oh, why are you hungry? Because I'm fasting. <laughs> Congratulations. Now that's, that's your reward, because obviously that is your motivation for doing it. He says, when you're fasting, make sure that you, you act normal. Even if you're a little hangry, when you are, just pull away for a minute. But whatever you're doing, whether you're serving another person, whether you're giving a financial offering, whether you are praying, whether you are fasting, regardless of what you are doing, check your motivation. 
ask yourself this one major question. Who are you doing this for? And if the answer is not God, then in that moment you are not worshiping. It is not a response to God. You are practicing idolatry. I will be the first to admit that we are way too idolatrous. We are way too focused on other people's opinions. We are way too focused on making sure that people notice what we do. Our motivation is thumbs up on social media. Our motivation is people thinking we've got a great voice or thinking that we have good rhythm, even though we probably don't. Maybe only Brad. Which is why we ask them to play the drums, right? Notice they don't ask me. But worship is not about us. It has never been about us. And when we try to make it about us, we turn our worship into idolatry. And in that moment, we're no longer honoring God. It's no longer an aroma that is pleasing to the Lord. It is a stench that is odious in his nostrils. I was just trying to figure out a way to work the word odious into any message... By the way, this isn't, this isn't just for you. This isn't just an indictment on you. This is an indictment upon the church as a whole and upon myself and other church leaders because I will confess as a church leader, it is far too easy to try to make it. It is far too easy to be focused on your opinions, your desires, your tastes and preferences, particularly when it comes to our worship on a Sunday morning. It's far more easy to focus on that than it is on God because guess what? He doesn't complain a lot, but you do. <laughs> I cannot tell you the number of times that after a service, people will come up and say, yeah, it was good, but it's too loud. It was really too loud. That's why we're sitting at the back. Or it was too quiet. We want it to be louder. Can we have it be a little more raucous to begin with? Or, hey, we really want more hymns worked into it, okay? Those are, those are the good things, not this new junk. Or, hey, we really want more contemporary stuff. Or, hey, we really want more country western worship. I can't tell you how many times people have asked for that. <laughs> and it's easy to try to placate that. I remember Pete having a conversation with Pete Dawson, one of our former worship leaders, where I go, dude, I, am, I don't even know how you do it because I feel like I can get up here and basically whatever I bring... Like, I don't feel judgment, I don't feel pressure to perform, but every time you get up, it's like you've got people on both sides pulling you, every which way, and there is simply no way to make everybody happy. And the worst part is, even when you do somehow make most of the people happy, their opinion is fleeting. Their approval is fleeting. We are a fickle people. And I'm not just talking about us. This is holistically two churches. And when we as church leadership try to placate that and play to that, we subtly or not so subtly in, declare to you guys that it is about your tastes and preferences, that worship is about you. And in that sense, I am sorry for the ways that we have given you that indication. It is not about you. And it is not about me. It's not about us at all. It's about him. We are the worshipers. He is the focus of our worship. And when we try to make it about anybody else, we cease to worship and we begin to practice idolatry. And we need to repent of it.
And here's the reason why this truly matters. Here's why this, I, this is why I carry this so heavily and I'm, and I'm taking an entire Sunday morning to have this conversation. Because let's just for a moment imagine that we leaned into trying to make everybody happy. And let's just for a moment imagine that we just kept singing the songs where we say the words, but our hearts are more focused on what other people think about us. And we live out the posture of Michael, who's more concerned about other people's opinions, rather than living out the posture of David, who doesn't care if he looks like a fool, and doesn't care if he's the only one clapping, and doesn't care if he's the only one who's on his knees or jumping up. He just doesn't care, because his focus is on Jesus. His focus is on his creator. His focus is not on the people around him. Let's just for a moment imagine that we never talked about it. We could build and make this building the most beautiful place possible, and we try. And we could fill it with the most beautiful people we could find, and I feel like we're doing a pretty darn good job. And we could have the most gifted worship leaders come up here and sing the best worship set, and we could sing on key the whole time. That's asking a lot. And I could write the most eloquent messages and deliver them with passion and fervor. But if we are focused on one another and not on God, if it's about making ourselves happy rather than really recognizing that worship is about God, then that doesn't honor God. We're not worshiping him. We're idolizing our own preferences. We've placed ourselves on the throne or other people's opinions on the throne. And in that moment, we are no longer worshiping our Father God. And so why on earth would we expect him to show up here so that he could watch his own kids performing for other people because they're insecure about their standing with him? Why would he do that? That would be painful to him. Not, it wouldn't bring him joy, it would bring him pain. Because what our actions would do, even if we're saying the words, we love you, you are everything, you are our all. Abba, Father, you're closer to me than the skin on my bones, like we just sang this morning. Even though those are the words that are coming out of our mouth. He didn't listen to our words, he listens to our hearts. And what we would be communicating to him with our hearts that are distracted by one another, is I am not secure in my identity as your son or your daughter. I am not secure in the love that you so vividly reminded me of when you went to the cross, Jesus. I'm not secure, and so I'm looking to other people to tell me I'm okay. Why on earth would we expect him to show up here and be blessed by our insecurity? That's why this matters. And I am complicit in this. I get, not only do I make you guys and your opinions more weighty than my father's opinion. But I find myself singing words to him when my heart is more focused on other people's opinions. And I, it needs to stop. And so we're going to go into a time of worship where I hope, I hope that you will be able to wholeheartedly worship our God, focused on him, irrespective of what other people do. I hope that you will feel the freedom, because you have it, to get up and move around the room. To stand, to sit, to kneel, whatever 
feels most appropriate to reflect the posture of your, because our hearts tend to follow the posture of our bodies. So however you need to move your body in order to worship our God, great, do it. Don't worry. If you feel like clapping to the beat, then do it, even if you're the only one. If you feel like harmonizing rather than simply singing the same key that Ben is, is modeling for us, then do it. Even if you don't harmonize well, do it. And if you hit a note or you're going through puberty and your voice cracks, who cares? He's listening to your heart. And in you being free, like David was free, you create space for others to be free. But before we get to that point where we begin to worship, I want to start by reading a couple of confessions. These are things that this week, as I've been stewing on it, these are the cry of my heart. Maybe this is just my confession. But if these confessions reflect your heart, then I invite you to kind of agree with me in your heart. Okay? So would you bow your heads for just a moment? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray these confessions because that's oftentimes our worship begins with confession. Our worship begins with acknowledging, hey, I want you to be the focus, God, but I have not made you the focus. So go ahead and bow your heads. And let me, let me read these. These are my confessions, but as the lead pastor of this church, I confess these for us, all of us. God, we confess that we have misdirected our worship. We have made it about us, not you. Father God, we confess that we have acted more like music judges than true worshipers. Oftentimes we sit back and silently critique the quality of the music rather than worshiping you with a whole undivided heart. And we want to stop. We confess that we've been more worried about the opinions of other people than about you. And in this way, we've unintentionally practiced idolatry. So we ask you that you would help us to recognize the idols that we have allowed to compete with you for our attention so that we can lay them down and focus fully upon you. We confess that we have limited our definition of worship to singing songs when anything and everything that we do in response to you is an act of worship. Father God, you are the reason that we sing. You are the reason that we serve. You are the reason why we gather here. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, to pour your spirit upon us and bring us back to the heart of worship because it is not about us. It's all about you. So would you be honored in our worship, whatever that looks like, would you be the focus of our hearts? Would you help us, Holy Spirit, to truly make our Father God the focus? Because it's not about us. It's all about you. Jesus, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Let's respond together. Yes, thank you, Father. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for giving us your son.
this time to you. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for what you've done. Help us to just tear down the walls between us, Father. Help us to tear down any, any barriers we've set up between our hearts and you. Any barriers to vulnerability, Father, we ask that you would just begin to soften us. And if we've tuned out your voice, Father, we just ask that you would knock again on that door, that you'd be whispering at the keyhole. that you would inspire a response, Father, that you would just stir us up to, to find new, new levels of, of relationship with you, new levels of intimacy with you, Father. Yeah. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Come on. All right. Hold on a second. I was like, you know, that, that's a perfect capstone to it. And then I'm just realizing... Um, you know, as I, was, as I was worshiping, God asked me one question. He's like, so would you worship me if it was country western? <laughs> Seriously? I'm not asking for it right now, mind you. I'm not asking for it. I'm just saying yes. And, 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 and let me just remind you now. Singing is just a sliver of worship. And you are worshipers. If you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, 
then you are worshipers who are invited to worship in every way possible. You worship him with your words and your song, but you worship him with the way you interact with others. You worship him with your finances. That's why we call even giving a financial act of worship, whether it's here or caring for the needs of another person. You have been blessed to be a blessing. You worship him in the ways that you interact with other people, especially the hard ones. And as you guys leave this place, your worship isn't ending. It's just beginning. Because out here, there's a whole bunch of people who think that Jesus is just a historical figure, that it's a lot more has been made of him than is true. They, they think that God is a figment of your imagination and a crutch you use. You worship him by reflecting his values into a world that celebrates values that are very contrary to his own. You do not worship him by fighting with the weapons that the world has used, putting other people down, mockery, being a jerk. There's way too much of that, way too much unkindness in this world. Reflect his values by loving others, turning the other cheek, blessing those who curse you, giving them a reason to run to Jesus, not to run from him. That is how you worship the Lord your God who has modeled it through his son, Jesus Christ. So your worship is not over. It's just beginning. If you have carried heavy things into this place today and you want to let us know about it, connection cards, let us know. If you've made a decision to follow Jesus and you want to let us know and you want to make a public declaration perhaps by being baptized, write it on the connection card. You can drop it in the white boxes on your way out. But Lighthouse Community Church, your worship is not over. It's just beginning. So now go and be the church. Have a wonderful week.